Welcome, welcome, welcome into A Seminarian and Friends, a podcast where my friends ask me their questions about Jesus, scripture, the church, or theology. My name is Kevin Gray, the seminarian who's probably in a class that addresses their quandaries. Today's question came from a good friend of mine in my small group. At the time, my church was preaching through the book of Lamentations. Our pastor said that Jeremiah, the same prophet who had written the book of Jeremiah, had also written Lamentations. But he also said that many scholars are now challenging this traditional view. My friend asked me if Jeremiah truly wrote it. I want to address that as well as the overall topic of biblical authorship. First, Lamentations is a book of the Old Testament, also known as the Hebrew Bible. In English Bibles, it follows Jeremiah because of the traditional view of his authorship and because Lamentations tells the same story as Jeremiah. Jeremiah had prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah that they were going to be destroyed and exiled as punishment and judgment for their sin. Then he described the actual fall of Jerusalem, Judah's capital city, in 586 BC signifying the full end of the kingdom of Judah and the official beginning of the exile. Lamentations gives us a street view of what it was like to be in Jerusalem during the siege and the conquering of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. Now, some scholars question if Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. Like I said, they point to the fact that no one claims authorship to begin the book, which most books of the Bible do, or most prophets do. And they also claim that the two books discuss foreign nations and King Zedekiah differently. However, Lamentations was written after the fall of Jerusalem to describe the weight of the moment in history, whereas Jeremiah was written before the fall. The people had different instructions and needs and feelings, but the overall theology of God, Israel, and sin was identical. Ultimately, Lamentation's message doesn't change if Jeremiah didn't write it, though it does carry extra weight if he did. So for this reason, and for reasons that I'm about to get into, it is best to conclude that Jeremiah did in fact write Lamentations. So, like I said, it is the traditional view that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. My Life Application Study Bible says it in the introduction page to Lamentations. In addition, my Old Testament professor, Dr. DeRoshi, edited a book of Old Testament theology entitled What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About, A Survey of Jesus' Bible. This is the section on Lamentations author in that book. The book of Lamentations is anonymous, but ancient Jewish tradition posits that Jeremiah was the author. We know this weeping prophet uttered laments and called for deep mourning, some of which you can find in 2 Chronicles 35.25 and then in Jeremiah 4.8, 6.26, 7.29, 9.20, 49.3. He continues, The heading of Lamentations in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, connects the book with Jeremiah, as do English versions, that locate it after the prophetic book bearing his name. Even if not Jeremiah, the author was someone like him who experienced and mourned the exile of Judah, 
who was convinced Jerusalem's destruction was divine judgment for the people's sins, and who retained a deep confidence in Yahweh's faithfulness. Another book I'm reading for the same class, entitled The World and the Word, An Introduction to the Old Testament, written by Eugene H. Merrill, Mark F. Rooker, and Michael A. Grisanti, is even more emphatic in its assertion that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. In addition to repeating the Septuagint's Jeremianic attribution for Lamentations, Rooker said, Moreover, the Aramaic Targum, the Peshitta, the Vulgate, and the Babylonian Talmud, as well as early church fathers such as Origen and Jerome, all attest that Jeremiah was the author. Furthermore, Rooker pointed back to 2 Chronicles 35-25 and stylistic similarities between Jeremiah and Lamentations, including repeated phrases such as, Among her lovers, she has none to comfort her. The wine of the cup of God's judgment. The virgin daughter of Judah. And the prophet's eyes flow down with tears. Rooker continued to point out that the theology is identical between the two books, saying the destruction of Jer Jerusalem was because of the nation's sins, the corrupt prophets and priests, and the reliance on ineffective foreign allies. So this process that we were just talking about is the process called textual criticism. Scholars do it, uh, and it as Rooker explained, is the critical study of the available manuscripts and translations in order to determine the original reading of the text. Now, these scholars compare surviving copies of the documents for variations in the text and evaluate what the original manuscript, which we no longer have, said. It also includes a process that determines who wrote the documents to whom. This is a recent subject and endeavor, for, as Merrill said, ancient authors, unlike modern ones, were little concerned about providing information on the composition of their texts. Such matters such as place, time, and occasion, and even authorship, were either ignored entirely or given only a passing and imprecise notice. However, more contemporary scholarship is of the opinion that this information is pertinent, and I would agree, even for theological reasons. Within the last couple hundred years, the word of God has undergone a change. The words and its power have remained immutable, but the general attitude toward it has shifted from the almost universal understanding, in the West at least, that the Bible is a special book, to now the assumption being that it is no different from any other book, and thus can be the subject to scrutiny. Now, scrutiny is not inherently a bad thing, for deeper study of the scriptures can certainly produce good fruit. However, the rise of this critical method during the so-called Enlightenment period has approached the Bible presupposing that it's not a divine work and its miraculous events are stories rather than historical fact. People have been prideful in their attempt to 
master the text instead of humbly coming to the text to be mastered as its intent. This method rejects the notion that traditionally held authors of portions of the Bible wrote it, citing arbitrary reasons. For example, scholars have doubted that Moses wrote the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, because some of the text refers to God by his covenant name, Yahweh, while other, seg other sections refer to him as Elohim, which is the Hebrew word that English Bibles translate as God. In other words, many scholars say that it is impossible for Moses to have called God by two names or titles, or his covenant name and one of his titles. Thus, they say that a separate author had to have written each section, and they divided the Torah into two arbitrary sections based on which name is used. As if, in a modern comparison, a man never calls his wife by her name and also a nickname. Another example comes from the book of Isaiah. Many say that all of Isaiah could not possibly have been written by the same author, for it accurately predicted events that would not take place for more than a hundred years, and instead that the predictions were added after the fact, presupposing the miraculous nature of scripture being impossible. Now this process of the critical method has been applied to every book in the Old Testament, and some scholars have contrived various justifications for why the traditional view on their authorship is wrong. However, problematically, these scholars never agree on which sections of each book were written by another person. For example, some suggest that Isaiah was written by two people, Isaiah and a Deutero-Isaiah, as the technical term goes while others suggest a three-author book for Isaiah, Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, and Trito-Isaiah. So these scholars never agree on which sections were written by other authors, and they never agree on the reasoning behind why they think this section was written by Isaiah as opposed to this section. Now I'm going to pause there because I'm guessing that some of you do not think that the issue of biblical authorship matters, but I'm here to tell you that it is of grave theological significance. Take Isaiah, for example. If it is true that Isaiah did in fact write all of the book hundreds of years before the predicted events happened, then it declares and proves that the God of the Bible is powerful and in possession of foreknowledge, which means he's also worthy of belief, worship, and obedience. If, however, the events in Isaiah were only added to the fact later, then, in the words again of Merrill, the OT thus is not the work of its self-ascribed authors, but in its present form it is the final edition of a centuries-long accumulation 
of texts and traditions that may or may not conform to the realities to which they testify. In other words, if the Bible was not written by whom the book's claim wrote them, then there is no reason to trust them or their context, contents, for the text might not be accurate to what happened. The Christian faith depends on the infallibility of Scripture, for we believe that Scripture reflects God's character, for he is truth himself. And if Scripture is not our final authority, then we have no final authority, and we're just kind of left up to figuring out our way to God ourselves, which is how every other religion happens and is the exact opposite of what the gospel of Christ is, which declares that God himself came and made the way to reconcile God to man. So that only through Christ, God and man can fellowship. The good news, however, is that despite this push against the truthfulness of the Bible, scholars, according to Merrill, are increasingly finding that the traditional understanding of scripture's inerrancy and infallibility have excellent literary, historical, and theological bases. In other words, scholars are finding more and more evidence to point to scripture's historicity and truthfulness and reliability so that the events that take place in scripture are given more and more reason for belief and faith. So we should trust that our Bibles accurately depict who wrote which book. And we also should trust that the contents of scripture are true. Our God is a God of righteousness and holiness. Our God is a God of love. Our God is a God of mercy. And our God is a God of reconciliation and forgiveness. Now, regardless of which belief you do end up taking, whether you think that the Bible is God's living and active word, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped in every good work, and for every good work, as the Bible claims and testifies of itself. Or, if you think that it is just another book written by man, either way, your belief is based on faith. You have faith that scripture is true, or you have faith that it's not. So I pray that God grants you to see the glory of Christ Jesus as revealed in the scriptures, so that you may truly live glorifying God and savoring forever the joys of Jesus our Savior, who died and rose again, purchasing the forgiveness of sins with his own blood, offering salvation to all who repent from their sins 
and believe in the Lord Jesus. As the scriptures say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. May it be so. Soli Deo Gloria.